Welcome to another Longwoods Breakfast. As always, I am your host, Matthew Hart, CEO for Longwoods Publishing and producers of these events. Today's event is supported by a number of organizations. I would like to thank Maria Judd from Healthcare Excellence Canada, um, a past breakfast speaker, Catherine Galton from HEROC, Kimberly Hansen from Hill and Knowlton, Paul Bullock from Everbridge, Steve Lowe from LBCG, Robin Sacon from Roche, and Zenya Kanat from Teladoc. Uh, just shy of a year ago, I was having just a nice, simple catch-up conversation with Leslie, and um, not to bore you with the details, but it was that conversation that led to today. So that is it for me. Um, I will hand the show over to Leslie Thompson and Ross Baker and enjoy. Ross, Leslie, it's all yours. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And um, welcome, everyone. Uh, we are uh, delighted to be here today to have a conversation with you about the um, kind of the next era of quality improvement. And we are setting up uh, the session to do it as a real conversation um, with some back and forth, uh, exchanging of ideas and insights and learnings from the pandemic, as well as um, looking, looking forward. And so um, I am just delighted to be here with, uh, with Ross Baker, um, one of the most uh, incredible leaders and pioneers in the thinking around quality improvement, not only in Canada, but recognized around the world. So I am delighted and a little bit nervous about having uh, a conversation with Ross uh, today because uh, we really want to do justice to the topic. And uh, we've got some questions and that we're going to go back and forth to, uh, to be able to uh, have a good conversation, hopefully stimulate some thinking and um, perhaps stimulate some action as well uh, toward the future of quality improvement. Yeah, thanks, Leslie. And uh, just to echo what you've been saying, I mean, uh, we've designed this as kind of a more informal interactive chat, um, which I think uh, is useful in this time where we've actually, we spent a lot of time reflecting together and talking about, you know, our views and uh, the issues that we see. And we've, we're trying to distill this into uh, something that is, is engaging for the audience as well. And, you know, we recognize that uh, Canada is a big country and there's many different realities. And so we look forward to, to your insights and your uh, observations and comments in the chat and the questions that, that you want to put forward uh, for us to consider as we move into this. Um, I'm now an emeritus professor at the University of Toronto and the Institute of Health Policy Management of, and Evaluation, the Dallas School of Public Health. Um, Ten years ago, I led the development of our master's program in quality improvement patient safety, which has been a huge success and very rewarding personally for us um, and, and for the students that we've seen it who have been, you know, a marvelous set of people who now have the skills and capabilities to really deal with the the critical issues that we see emerging in our healthcare system. I also uh, have a, a real world connection uh, to quality improvement because I'm the a board member and the chair of the quality and safety committee at the University Health Network in Toronto, which has been a fantastic experience for me um, and a very uh, interesting experience through the pandemic. So as I said, we're going to we're going to be interacting with each other and hopefully with you as well as we move forward here. So our aim is to really inspire you and to, to give you some insights into what we hope the future of quality and quality improvement is in, in this country. 
So uh, back so to you, Leslie. Okay, well, let's dive right in. And we really uh, can't uh, think about quality without reflecting on the impact of the pandemic, um, what it has meant for, uh, for us, for systems and Canadians and people around the world. So let's uh, jump in and Ross, what do you think are the biggest lessons learned from the pandemic that will impact our thinking about the future of quality? Yeah, it's, you know, I think we're all thinking about that as we come out of the pandemic, right? It, it's a time for reflection and it's time for thinking about what happened. COVID-19 was a stress test for the Canadian system um, uh, and like all healthcare systems around the world. Um, but it's clear that Canada was not prepared for the pandemic, that we, we're really caught on, on, back on our feet. Um, and we know the pandemic exposed many vulnerabilities in our system. Um, in in long-term care, clearly, that's been a major focus, but also in primary care and home care. Um, and there's, there's been a lot of focus on sector by sector um, issues. But to me, the biggest lesson of the pandemic was not the, um, the shortcomings in, in individual sectors. The biggest lesson was around the absence of a system orientation. Uh, the ability to see the connections and the ways in which we can work more effectively between providers and between sectors. Um, and the, the lesson is we need to act more as a system and less as a set of loosely connected, separately funded uh, organizations and, and sectors. Many of the problems that emerged in the pandemic cannot be solved solely within sectors, but require collaborative problem solving and joint action to make a difference. And where this occurred, it did occur. Um, and I'm just gonna speak of the experience in Ontario, which I know best, but where this occurred, this interaction between sectors, it had considerable success. In Ontario, a number of acute care hospitals stepped forward when they saw the crisis in long-term care and staff, physicians and nurses went into long-term care homes to help out with the pandemic, to help out with these patients in dire straits um, and to really, help to rescue long-term care homes. Um, and staff also went out to help uh, public health with mass vaccination efforts and going out into vulnerable communities um, to hold uh, campaigns and to recruit people to come and get, get their boosters and their inoculations. But the question is now, what happens as we go back to the normal world? Will there be a declaration of victory? Will there be a return to the status quo? Um, and to me, that would be a real waste of this crisis. Let's figure out what we need to do now to create a more effective system to link the pieces together. So that's, that's the first issue. And I'm gonna come back to some of these themes, Leslie, uh, later, because I think it resonates. This idea of systems thinking and systems responses uh, really resonates against a lot of other issues uh, in the crisis. But I, I wanna hear from you too. So um, building on that, I wanna make the connections with what you're talking about to kind of the human connection. Um, and to me, um, listening to Peter Singer, who a number of you may know, you know, great Canadian, who's also advising CEO of WHO, he says there are three lessons to learn from the pandemic and they are equity, equity, and equity. And I believe that the kind of the spotlight on kind of the human factors associated with the planning and delivery of care, 
the way in which we uh, did or did not meet the, the needs of more vulnerable populations, hard to reach uh, communities, that that really puts the, the spotlight on some of the fundamental issues that we have to come to grips with if we're truly going to have uh, quality care and quality health systems. There are no systems without the people. And on that front, the other big lesson we learned from the pandemic was the impact on people from the caregivers and the people on the front line and leading the system as well. And I'll take this opportunity to say thank you to every single person who's out there listening and participating today to the incredible courage and work and, um, and commitment that was shown each and every day as we get through the pandemic, but I hear from people directly the level of intensity um, and the pace of, of, um, of, of work while there has been urgency in addressing the, uh, the big gaps and needs, it's not a, we're not in a sustainable cadence in terms of being able to change and uh, continue on the quality journey. So the, the call to action, one of the really interesting pieces around the qual, call, around a call to action for this is even in, in JAMA, they talk about the uh, quintuple aim. So building on population health, the needs and uh, experiences of patients and families, our caregivers and the workforce, and uh, also now equity as well. And Ross, I think we, we really can't speak about the future of quality improvement without grounding ourselves in the reality that these are, this is really where we have to start. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, and certainly, you know, the growing focus on equity and the, the issues of in inclusiveness and diversity, I think it's a real important lesson moving forward, which has been brought home as we've seen the variable experience um, among racialized communities, which didn't have access to the resources, uh, didn't have the same experience as other parts of our system. And so now we recognize, I think, fully what population health means, because we've been through this together and we recognize that although individual experiences may vary, we have to think about this at a system level in terms of, of providing access to resources and care uh, to everybody in the system. And more than that, uh, more than that, I think it's actually um, modifying, adjusting, creating uh, care models uh, that engage people where they're at not just physically where they're at, but mentally in terms of their trust in the system, in terms of the things that make a difference for them. And, you know, a shout out to uh, Andrew Brazeri and some of his colleagues in Toronto who've really gone out and met people where they live and taken, um, taken the, the, the vaccination strategies, taken the, the talk about why vaccination is so important to people, listened to them and then responded and built that trust. So that's, that's a really important element in moving forward. And you know, it, I think theoretically, we've all agreed that that's important. Now, practically, we have to figure out how to translate that into local action. Um, and so on this theme about you know, reflection and learning uh, from, from the pandemic, you know, we have to do more than just declaring victory and thanking everybody who contributed. I think that's important. I think we should take some time to do that. Recognize, frankly, the many heroes across the system 
who put their own health and well-being at risk in order to provide the care, in order to, to show up to work, even when they didn't feel well and they were quite stressed. Um, but it's more than that now. We have, to, we have to go on and ask the question, what were the failures? What do we need to do differently in the systems to provide um, a more robust, a more resilient system that builds on uh, the strengths and addresses the weaknesses moving forward? So let's take a systems view of this. Um, think about long-term care, for example. I think we do need to do things in long-term care. That's a pretty, there's a pretty clear case for that. But the issue isn't long-term care. The issue has to be, be framed in to the question of what does successful aging look like for a country with an aging population and, and growing multimorbidity? How do we create a strategy that allows people to have greater choice about what their journey is through the system and the help that they get? You know, we've talked a lot about long-term care, but home care has been really affected by the pandemic and many staff left home care to go to other settings um, where they were paid more. Um, and, and that's, you know, so we've, we've really disabled home care in, the, in Ontario and I suspect in other parts of the country. So let's, let's talk about what we need to do there because it's not just long-term care. 96% uh, of Canadians do not want to go to long-term care. Their choice would be to remain at home. And many people will have to go to long-term care because the physical care demands um, and other issues will require them to be in that placement. But let's create multiple options. And there's lots of people we can learn from. The Danish example is really interesting. Denmark said, let's engage our elder citizens and ask them what they want. And let's design the system to meet those needs, not to meet the needs of, of people who sit in positions uh, where they have the, the money and the responsibility to make decisions. And, and on that, the I think there, there's a couple of points to pick up on. And one is the, uh, as we, we look at building new models of care and, um, and act on some of the learnings from the pandemic, and, and the pandemic is not over, it's going to take a while for the true effects to, uh, to, be, um, to be handled. But hearing the, the co-production, we've talked a lot about partnerships with patients and residents and families, but moving to that true co-production is something we're still, we've still got a long way to go because you get to a different place when you listen and learn from those who are experiencing the care, um, be it in their home, be it in their, in uh, whatever setting it, it, it is. We learned, uh, you know, as as most of you know, Health Standards Organization is a is recognized as a you know a, a national body for the the setting of, of 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 national standards in Canada, and the process that we use for the recent long term care standard, which really is focused on seniors and the lives of seniors and how to improve those in the care settings, and. 16,000 Canadians have been contributing to the public kind of consultation period for the development of this standard. And what that says to me is the um, is putting the um, putting out to the public discourse with voices that have equal value to professionals and policymakers and academics, the people who are looking to have care that is compassionate um, and capable and safe. Uh, 
that's what's going to shape the future. And it sounds almost kind of, well, of course we would listen to people, but we haven't actually been doing that in really systematic and disciplined ways and finding voices that we might not always, you know, might not always be, uh, be right in front of us. You know, when we when listening to those 16,000 voices and producing the kind of the what we heard report, there was also incredible um, insights that I think are relevant to the future around the balancing of rights and safety of the individual and the collective um, about, you know, the individualization of care versus the standardization of care. Both are necessary, neither are sufficient. And then balancing the duality of environments. And there's been often for people who have experience across the system, they're in multiple settings. So how do you make sure that we've got continuity that's truly pathway focused and experience focused, not institution provider and silo focused, which speaks a bit to your, um, your, your point on uh, integrated systems, which I think is a very um, important uh, area for us to be chatting about as well. Yeah, you know, and those are those are excellent points, and I think I'm really glad to hear that uh, this this perspective about bringing in multiple views uh, is really being reflected in the development of standards and and then in the application of those standards uh, to providers. I think that's really important moving forward. Um, I see some comments in in the chat about who's going to be engaged in this, and I have to I have to say, you know, as somebody who spent my most of my career in, in the university that we need to move beyond experts. We need to move to a situation where we're involving a range of people who have different experiences in the systems and who can articulate those experiences to inform uh, the design and the evolving design of, of systems. And you know, we don't do a good job of that still in many settings. Um, you, know, uh, you know, the standards development process um, stands aside from many things that are going on. But there's also some prominent examples um, in Alberta, um, in Ontario, and BC of, of, of efforts that are really truly engaging uh, patients, caregivers, um, and providers into uh, ensuring that there's many voices that are being added to this and not just people who are so-called experts um, in these areas. Although that experience, that research-based knowledge is, is vital too, I would say, in moving forward. So it's a, it's a critical task and it requires... Um, really expert facilitation to be able to do this. But I think now we're at the point, um, the pandemic is not over, um, but the pandemic is evolving. Um, and we need to now come out of this uh, current situation and take advantage of that for a stock taking where we engage a broad range of citizens, providers, experts, government, uh, certainly, to be part of a conversation about what we do that. If we don't do that, we lose the opportunity to create a broader focus and to strengthen the connections between long-term care, home care, primary care, acute care, and the rest of the system. And um, I think increasingly, I see this at the board table as well, even in a large acute care hospital, um, there's a recognition of the vulnerability of those services if we don't at the same time create a system that enables people to get care um, at, at their local providers and to be in a system that ensures that when you move between those sectors that the information and accountability for your care moves with you um, that's a 
that's a critical challenge moving forward. But again, you know, we can't just focus on the pieces. We have to have a broader evolving view of what we want our system to look like. You know, it's, it's a long time since we introduced Medicare. Let's go back and ask the question, you know, what else has to change as we move forward? And on that, on the, uh, the integrated care now, you know, the, it's certainly as, as we look as uh, you know, with the levers of change that we have with standards and embedding criteria into standards that can help drive change and drive uh, behavior and system change with the conduct of, of external evaluations and peer review assessments to say, okay, how are we doing against the standards that were set and building capacity as well for the future. The, you know, with the introduction of the first, uh, it's actually the world's first uh, people-centered integrated health services standard, the consensus around the world has been very much, and with experts, when I think about experts, it's everybody as the expert, the lived experience experts and the traditional experts um, all coming to the, to the table. But that uh, focus on shared governance, um, collective vision for the populations that are being served and uh, co-producing together where we need to go is uh, fundamental to the, the, the standard and looking at what, it, what needs to be in place for high performing integrated systems. But the other thing that it's really kind of taught us, and there's been a project that's been funded by Health Canada that we've been working with, with partners, 600 people and 60 organizations around the country um, for the development of pathways for children and youth living with mental illness and addictions. And with their involvement of co-production and looking right across the pathway, across sectors from schools to primary care, acute care, rehab, what is the experience across and capturing that integrated network of experiences, focusing on safe transitions of care, building common language and uh, that can connect caregivers and people across the, the system is really vital. So we have to be able to work at what are the things from a system level, as well as getting down to that individual experience level. And that's leading us as, a, as an organization into pathway assessments. In, in Quebec, we, we now look at pathways across the sectors and assess across their, in the traditional tracer methodologies, rather than the just the individual, um, the individual services and, and silos. And these are examples of where we need to take the directions that are happening and, and actually um, make other changes to support. Are we moving in the direction that we think we are? And is the value out of those changes being created for people that uh, matter most? And those are those that are experiencing the care. Yeah, you know, I think, we're learning a lot about the necessity of having that broader engagement and then managing that broader engagement to end up with, with uh, designs that will enable the delivery of care to meet the needs and fulfill the experience uh, expectations of patients and families. Um, you know, behind all of this uh, is, is the broader issue about how do we give tools to these groups to enable them not only to set standards, but also to create the programs and activities that are necessary to deliver care. And 
you know, I don't think anybody who knows me will be surprised when I say that I think we're still at the halfway point in terms of delivering our capabilities around quality improvement. Um, we've come a long way. There's a variety of, of educational programs um, in this country that are now providing you know, excellent training for people. But there's a couple of issues that we really need, still need to address. And, and one of them is that uh, we've been really focused um, in certain sectors and certain geographies. I mean, if you look at the range of programs, uh, there's very strong programs in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario. And there's very limited offerings in much of the rest of the country. I'm not saying there are no offerings. I'm just saying it's very limited. And access to that is often quite uh, limited. Um, so that when we create quality initiatives, and we have this experience even in Toronto, where we now have several hundred people who've graduated from our, from our master's program, uh, we need to create people who have the skills who work in the environment that appreciate the knowledge and approach of quality improvement. And that means in addition that we need to create a whole systems view about quality and quality goals and quality efforts. Um, so most of the training that happens in Canada is training focused at the front line. And that's appropriate because that's where the action is. That's where the change has to happen. So we need to engage and empower frontline providers to identify the, the problems in the existing systems and to test out uh, new approaches that will make a difference uh, for them and for their patients and clients. But we also need to engage leaders. Um, leaders need to have a deep knowledge of improvement and to create the strategies and the, the uh, investments that are necessary to move organizations and systems in a different direction. And I think we, we've really failed at that in most places. I'm not saying everywhere there's some there's some great examples of people who understand this and are doing it but i would say if you look around the world at people who are very successful uh, there is a system-wide focus on quality and there's an engagement from board to ward of staff and and uh, leaders and support uh, people within organizations and across organizations to create more effective systems of care um, and if you don't believe me um, then you need to go visit some of these systems because it's like walking into a different world. You see people talk differently about what their problems are. They share those problems in different ways and they make progress in surprising uh, enterprises. So I would suggest uh, some, ex some examples of those organizations would be uh, the Cleveland Clinic um, or um, less well-known Cincinnati Children's Hospitals and Clinic in Cincinnati, Ohio. And it's not just in the US, if you go to England, you can see Salford Royal in Manchester or the East London NHS Foundation Trust. Um, those are places that you go and see things that really offer examples. And again, one of the one of the challenges we faced in the pandemic is, of course, we've all been bunkered for a couple of years. But I think now is the time to get out, to see what other people are doing and to learn from that and not to adopt it blindly, but to really come back and say, how do we fit this into the Canadian system with our geography and our, um, our local, you know, our 13 local uh, healthcare delivery systems that we've de delivered in, in this country. So back and to you, Leslie. I, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of the focus on uh, what I would call the, our global learning. I mean, as, uh, as Accreditation Canada and HSO, we work in 15,000 locations across 38 countries and have a, a very strong network of, of peers and surveyors and clients and uh, 
the it was huge the striking during the pandemic around being able to mobilize some of the the learning and the trans rapid transition of tools and resources and making those available across uh, across barriers across boundaries across um, jurisdictions that was was very key the global mindset being uh, being being key I think the um, you know we've set out a new um, kind of update and refresh of strategy as many organizations have through this, uh, you know, after reflecting with the, the pandemic and lessons learned at hearing from so many uh, folks, um, both clients and partners and, and others. And, and we're really kind of uh, doubling down on safer care, a vision of safer care and a healthier world. We believe that safety is very much kind of that physical safety, cultural safety, psychological safety, broadening that definition. That's one of the things we're seeing from leading systems and leading uh, organizations that it's got, uh, I think, great promise. And yet it, it makes it a bit harder. Some of the measures we would typically use for safety um, was challenged at a, a, a table with uh, a number of, of uh, indigenous leaders. And they said, when are you going to start to think about systemic racism as an incident of harm? And so, you know, we step back and look at, okay, how do we build that into the instruments, the thinking, the, um, the expectations of change? And to that end, we are moving both from the safer care and the commitment to a healthier world, thinking about the broader social development goals. Just when you think you're overwhelmed with dealing with what's right in front of you and you say, okay, I gotta take care of the world and, and help make it a better place too. But the, the reality is yes, that is part of, of quality. The new governance standard that is being released soon has some, for the first time in history, has very clear expectations of boards, not only for quality of care, but also for environmental sustainability, for uh, addressing anti-Indigenous racism, for uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, as well as the fundamentals of safety and, uh, and, and care, including the attention to workforce health and workforce well-being, which is, um, which is fundamental. And so if we're truly going to improve the conditions of care, we have to improve the conditions of work and have that mindset of safer care and the broader uh, agenda of improving the health and well-being of, of people uh, where they are in their communities. Yeah, that's so great. And, and there's a couple of themes there I'd like to pick up on. One is the you know, learning from the global experience around uh, improving uh, healthcare, and uh, as as you you referenced the Lancet work and the development yes. of sustainable development goals, which I think is hugely important. And we have to remember, you know, we're talking about population health. Well, um, the world is a population. We need to be thinking about what the health needs are of people across the globe. And you know, COVID brought home this lesson that none of us will be safe until all of us are safe. Um, yeah. But one of the one of the things that's really interesting to me is, you know, the focus has shifted now um, with the Lancet report and Margaret Crook and her and her colleagues um, have said it's not just access to healthcare. That's been that's the important goal. 
It's quality, exactly right. What's the point of getting care if you're harmed for that care, if that care doesn't meet your needs, if it doesn't treat you as a person whose experience and needs are, are respected? Um, so we need, to, we need to now put those things together in a, in a different way. Uh, we can't ignore the issues of access and building, uh, building resources in uh, low-income countries and middle-income countries, but we have to do this in a way that allows people to, to value and seek out uh, that care moving forward and not just, not just um, ignoring that as, a, as an issue. Um, bad care is not care that we want to design. So we have to figure out a way in low resource environments to, to build those programs and to sustain and oversee those programs. So, so I think that's an important issue. Um, on the on the sustaining and the the growing, you and I talk a lot about um, learning health systems and that, that real shift. I think in our final minutes of of really um, putting that emphasis on continuous improvement and learning, and in and that's been a real driver for us as we move into the the future of shifting from kind of episodic checks and and heavy metrics uh, for quality improvement to a continuous uh, improvement in learning. We are heading down the path of the days of, you know, the big survey team coming in every four years on site and how you're doing. Um, those days will be over. We are, as we shift, and this has been part of what the pandemics taught us and what the leading uh, health systems of making sure we're embedding and building in continuous learning capabilities and capacities, empowering people to engage in quality throughout their organizations um, in, and across boundaries in new and different ways, digitally enabled, working together, thinking about how do we plan and co-produce actions that will make a difference to the people that we serve and engaging and involving all voices in the development and, uh, and delivery of that care. And to me, that, that uh, people side, uh, the, the we talk about kind of people powered health and, and it's actually kind of the way you get health is through that uh, involvement and engagement of people and making quality improvement kind of a people powered exercise and a people powered way of being as opposed to kind of bureaucratic um, only at the only at the system level it's got to start where the hearts and minds of, of the individuals are and that to me is is very much the future what are your kind of kind of final thoughts uh, Ross around the the future and and um, and what we can ask of others to join us in helping to shape that. So I'm by nature an optimist, and I think this is a really exciting time to be in healthcare. Um, many people are exhausted now, and we have to recognize that and, and deal with that and support them. But I think the opportunity now is to really create something that is new and different, uh, a system that really meets the needs of people who use it and provides a supportive environment for, for the people who are providing care. Um, so, you know, this idea about learning health systems is not a new idea. It's something that's been around for a while and it was developed um, initially um, by uh, experts. Um, and we, so we have to be careful with this. We need, to, we need to bring in different views about what learning health systems are about. Uh, but, you know, the idea was proposed and developed initially by the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine in the U.S. And it, it focused on this idea of 
more rapid translation of research findings, evidence-based research uh, now translated to clinical care. Um, but it's really evolved over time. And, and the idea about still connecting the research world and the practice world more closely uh, still motivates this uh, idea. Um, but it needs to be included, needs to include the views and experiences of others besides researchers and practitioners. And so a couple of examples uh, where I think this has really worked well. Uh, one of them is the um, development of, you know, uh, learning health systems built around uh, large scale electronic health records. This is a huge opportunity, um, not just in the US, but now increasingly in Canada. And we see a number of really promising developments, including you know, the Alberta Health Service's full commitment to develop a single um, electronic health record uh, for their system, which will now enable the connections between different parts of the, our, our siloed system in Alberta and allow us to learn from not just individual patients and the research that bears on their conditions, but allow us to learn from a wide variety of, uh, of patients in specific cohorts so that we can standardize, but then customize the care that those patients get. Um, so I think that's a really powerful experience. And the second example I wanna to talk to is the example uh, which is caught up in the um, collaborative networks developed around chronic care for pediatric patients, initially started um, in Cincinnati and now across the US. And one of those examples is the example of inflammatory bowel uh, patients where in a period of a little over a decade, um, researchers, clinicians, uh, patients and their families um, and others have come together to redesign care for these patients and to move the overall remission rate for these um, inflammatory bowel disease patients from a relatively modest rate of you know, 30 to 40% to a rate of 80 to 90% for patients in these programs. And it's not all about translating research into practice. It's about translating patient experience into approaches to care and approaches to living uh, that make sense for those patients and allow them to manage their own care uh, moving forward. So I think yes. this is a really exciting time. We have to develop um, strategies and we have to support the groups that want to do this because I think Unfortunately, we're so caught up now and essentially so right in the pandemic with delivering care that we haven't been able to give people the time and the opportunity to come together and to redesign the care that we're doing. So, you know, my hope is that we come out of this pandemic with a different view uh, about what's possible and that we um, support, energize and create uh, the kinds of fora that uh, we've been talking about here that uh, build a future system that we can all be proud of and take part in. And that does involve so many uh, others as, as we talk about too, you know, quality improvement is very much a, uh, a team sport. And, you know, be it the sponsors of, of today's event, so many others that are uh, just such great examples of collaborators. It's going to take us all um, quality infrastructure. We only, we play one role. Uh, one part of a broader quality infrastructure and commitment to uh, to improving care and the lives of, of people that that we are all here to serve and and really coming together, learning from each other and um, and 
igniting that that power and the passion that that can uh, happen coming together while addressing the fundamentals. There are some lines that should not be crossed when it comes to quality and safety. We have to balance those fundamentals as we're moving through this next phase of change. The future is about connection, digitally connected, connected care, people connected across silos and systems, and that caring, the connection, and um, will will really uh, help move us uh, move us forward together. And I, I too am am an optimist and excited about the about the the future, and uh, look forward to working with uh, with everybody that's here today to um, to to help chart those those new paths. We're here for for you for each other, and it's going to take the collective uh, in order to yeah. make an impact. Yeah, totally agree. And just looking at the chat, one of the issues we really haven't talked about explicitly, but, but I think has been present um, in, in the background of our comments is this issue about leadership in the system. Yes. And, you know, and, and one of the points I would make is, you know, leadership is a really tough role. And these last two years have been very hard on leaders in the system. So we need to support those leaders as we do the frontline providers, because many of them I know have been working seven days a week, you know, 15, uh, 20 hours a day, um, to make sure that their systems work and that they can make the connections necessary. And again, um, part of that effort uh, happens because we haven't designed the system well to, to pivot and to really address emerging issues. We need to think about how do we do that? How do we build in that sort of reserve Science. capacity in, mm -hmm. into the system so that we're not you know, putting people into situations that endanger their health just to do what they feel is necessary to get their jobs done? But the other, the other point on leadership is that it's not about leadership as a, as a set of positional uh, responsibilities. It's around leadership throughout the system. You know, patients as leaders, uh, providers as leaders, and you know, the systems that work well develop leaders throughout the system. And sometimes they come from very surprising places, but we need to encourage, develop, and support that. And I have to say, although we have lots of great leadership programs in this country, we need to do more about new forms of leadership and to provide the ways in which um, people can become engaged in and contribute to this redesign of our system. Uh, Ross, Leslie, thank you very much. Obviously an important conversation uh, from two very important leaders. So again, thank you very much.